Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Thriving Adoptees podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Shelby, Shelby Redfield-Kilgore. Welcome to the show, Shelby. Looking forward to our conversation today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Great. So um, Shelby was born in uh, South Korea and you just turned 40 this year, did you say? I turned 40 in um, October of this year. Yes. Mm -hmm. And um, so she is an adoptee and also a, a, a filmmaker. So, uh, and I, I think, did you start doing that because of the healing effects you had when you were 17? That was, you said something that I, I saw something online that said that you first shared your story when you were 17. Is that right? Yes. So when I was um, 17 years old, my my parents, my adopted parents took my brother and I to Korea on a homeland tour. So there were, there were other adoptive families with us. Um, and uh, I realized on that trip, like it was um, with my family, it was unique that we were very open about talking about how we felt about adoption. Like I was able to talk about when I, you know, had questions about my first mother and uh, growing up, just wondering about her. So having that open conversation where I could talk about my conflicted feelings about it was, uh, I didn't, I didn't realize how unique that was that a lot of families didn't have that kind of environment. And so on this trip, it was it was a roller coaster ride. It was the first time being in a country where I felt like everyone looked like, you know, I looked like everyone else because uh, I, I grew up in a predominantly white town and community. And um, and some of the other other adoptees um, were like we, we connected that were my age, you know, about about our experiences but there was one particular one who never really talked about it and so being on this trip it like forced you to think about adoption and how that made you feel and I I think you know we were in this like group of us in the hotel room because basically this this trip they would make you eat Korean food and go shopping in the markets and sightsee and then they take you to the orphanage and you would be like immersed in this place where there are first mothers that go to this center to uh, relinquish their rights uh, the day that they give birth. And it's also a place where there were kids under the age of 18, where the parents were not able to take care of them at home, but they put them in this center or orphanage uh, and they could come visit them, but they didn't relinquish their rights. Um, so they grew up, you know, and so you're just surrounded by these really young kids and then talking with these, um, young, well, some of them weren't that young, you know, you think they'll be teenagers or, you know, some of them were in their twenties, maybe early thirties even. And, uh, we learned on that trip that if you're single and unwed, uh, society won't accept the baby uh it'll be ostracized and then the mother also will be ostracized by their community family and friends 
it was it was definitely a hard truth to learn that it wasn't the simple narrative I grew up with, that I was given up out of love to be given a better opportunity uh, because of my mother was too poor to care for me. Um, it was so much more complicated that complicated than that. And um, I remember like a uh, first mother said or asked us like, did you have a better life? And I didn't, I didn't answer that. I think another adoptee did. I'm not sure what they said. I, I think they said yes and explained a little bit about why. But I think I really mulled over that question, you know, uh, later on when I processed the trip. Um, but there was this, you know, after going on this emotional roller coaster ride, there was this one adoptee that I, you know, had said she hadn't really thought about it or talked about it with her parents. And she had um, a breakdown. And I remember seeing her crying and like, we're just all kids. We're all 17 or 18. I was 17 at the time. And, you know, we tried to comfort her as best we could. But it made me so angry that her parents did not have this, like, open environment. Um, and... Like, I just felt super irresponsible that they didn't kind of try and open that, at least even conversation before going on this trip. Like, did she really want to go on this or did your parents want to go on this? Uh, so it made me think about, you know, when someone is ready and timing and, you know, adoptive parents that are raising kids of a different race and from a different country and how, like, ethical and moral that is and if they're being responsible um, uh, and then another thing on this trip was I found out that I was able to meet my first mother and I had always wanted that ever since I was five. And I realized what adoption was like, my parents was, had always told me, um, but I didn't, it didn't click until I was five, <laughs> you know, and they, to me, they seemed very wealthy. They lived in this huge house and I, I remember being so mad and that why, why can't you guys go find her then? So she can come live in this big house. Like, why did we have to separate? Why did I have to mourn this loss so young and like try and process that, you know? So it's, it's something that affected my life growing up in ways that I didn't know how it would affect me in my twenties and thirties, even with therapy, <laughs> like my, my parents you know, uh, had, had me talk to someone when I was five, when it first came up. And, um, we also talked as a family, a counselor before the trip. Um, and my mom even told me later on that she went to individual therapy to talk about her insecurities as a mother, you know, not feeling like she really was since I was adopted. So that would not come out on the trip because this trip was about the kids. So I feel like my parents, you know, they were like, our family was not perfect. That's any family. But I think they did the best they could with learning about the resources that were out there available in the 80s, you know, when I was growing up in the 90s. Like my mom even went to the few conferences that were available where adoptees would come and speak, adult adoptees about their experience. Uh, so I feel like I got kind of a head start more than a lot of other adoptees my age and of course older adoptees that were back in the day when they were told if it was same race not to be 
told they were adopted because they would feel less than like even then they knew uh in the baby scoop era during the you know the um the 1950s 60s and 70s uh, I've talked to first our mothers who felt coerced into placing their babies for adoption or surrendering is the term they use um but Anyway, so I met my my first mother and it was a dream come true at the time. Like I really felt growing up like there was a hole missing in my life or a hole in my heart and something missing in my life. And I thought that meeting her would fill that uh, and that I, you know, I just wanted to know that she thought about me, if she loved me, all those things, what she looked like, um, if she liked to sing, you know, all these things uh, that I, I enjoy doing that. I didn't see reflected back from my parents or, you know, the nurture versus nature. Um, and it's so it was the meeting at first was really uh, not what I was expecting because I was so emotional. I've always been very emotional, wear my heart, my sleeves. And she um, she said she was not going to cry. Uh, she's going to stay strong. Um but, you know, during the meeting, she was very warm and she told me that she thought about me every day. She loved me and that I had two older half brothers uh, that she had kept. She told me only really one thing about my first father, that he was a good man and had a healthy heart because uh, we didn't really think much about asking about health history at the time I was so young you know you think you're invisible when you're that young uh, that nothing can really hurt you and uh, she brought her sister along for support and uh, because she kept me a secret she had remarried and had never told her husband about me that's why she was on the fence right before the trip I got this letter from the agency saying she did not want to meet me and it was like a second rejection and I remember not even wanting to go on the trip because what was the point but I was convinced to still try and go and that we could you know still ask her and so you know the second time we did and told her that I was in the country she relented and I'm so glad she did um at the end she did she did cry I I thinking back on it like memories um it still makes me get uh, teary-eyed or, you know, because uh, it was such a huge, huge moment for me. Um, so anytime I see something where a family member is separated or they reunite after years, uh, it just tugs at my heart. Um, and uh, the aunt, it's so funny because my, my parents and I, we were like, we don't see how I look like her. I looked more like my aunt is how I felt. Um, but uh, she had uh, a good life, you know, with her new husband, it seemed. Um, and she she told me that she always was going to give me away. Like, she, I think I, that was something I thought about later, um, that she had two sons she kept, even though they were, you know, it was from a marriage. So I was born out of wedlock. Um, but, you know, for that time, that short time, I felt really whole. It was, 
it was uh, a dream come true. And it was also surreal. And I feel like a lot of adoptees don't get this, this kind of experience. Um, but, and uh, when I was in high school, my senior year, I went to an art school, my brother and I interviewed about the experience or I did a little documentary with two other uh, schoolmates one of them still a really really close friend of mine and uh, I won a scholarship (laughs) for it for college it was great and uh, the reason why you know we did that was because we wanted to share a story and bring awareness about it I realized when I was being interviewed it was a very like healing experience. It was a different way to kind of process what happened. Um, and I knew that one day I wanted to provide this for others when I was a more, uh, you know, developed story storyteller. And, uh, and that happened uh, about 10 years later when I was 28, I started and it wasn't adoptees that were open to interviewing with me at first. It was adoptive parents. And I was okay with that because I was so, I, I am still close with my adoptive, my parents who raised me, you know? Um, and I wouldn't say that I was in the fog, but I would say that, you know, having a really great relationship with my parents made it difficult for me to navigate once adoptees came forward to, to, to say that they wanted to share their stories after seeing, you know, um, my story and adoptive parents are like, well, I, you know, these are adoptees that were open to telling their stories and they reached out to me um, uh, because they wanted to start getting the adoptee experience out there from the adoptee, not the adoptive parents telling the story of their adopted child. Um, it was uh, eye-opening to me because of all of the the heartbreaking stories I heard about the abuse in their adoptive homes. Um, and also that some adoptions were not because their parents decided to place them. It was because they were lost in like a third world country and there was just no way to accurately track people down like a four-year-old or a five-year-old that didn't have good language skills to explain where they lived, you know? Um, so I have those kinds of stories. I have stories of adoptees that were abused uh, by their, you know, you know um, their homes. And then they were adopted out as nine or 10-year-olds um, to a different country and learning the language and navigating that. I do remember it was funny though when I talked to adoptees that are adopted from Korea or something and they come to uh, the US for the first time in like the 80s. Uh, I remember the, my parents told me the first thing they took me to is McDonald's on the way home and I had french fries and I love french fries still to this day. You know, it's like a very a big comfort food and another another adoptee I remember told me that uh it's like we connect over these little things that we first experienced when we came to the U.S. over on on the plains um but yeah so I think hearing a lot of these stories that really were so different than mine like a lot of families didn't talk about like like the you know the the adoptee 
from when I, that, that I had met when I was 17, um, didn't talk about their adoption. Uh, that also was a lot of adoptees I talked about. Some of them didn't really want to do searches until after their parents had died because they didn't want to upset them. Um, and, and in some cases I could relate to, you know, putting adoptive parents feelings first as a child, <laughs> you know, I didn't talk about my identity issues as like an Asian American growing up in a predominantly white community. I mean, there was diversity in the, t- in the school that I was in, but not, not a lot of Asians, you know, it was, um, um, other people of color. Yes. Yeah. Can I take you back a, a, a couple of minutes? You, you said that meeting your, um, there's so much there, you know, like, where do I, where do I start? Where's the next question? Um, mm-hmm. uh, you, you you said that you um, obviously it, it sounds like your your mum and dad were very your doctor mum and dad were very proactive so they they did all the all the the, the all the all the right things um, and this openness was was a of benefit you know it helped you significantly mm-hmm. and you also talked about feeling whole after meeting your um, your 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 first mum uh, as teenagers. yeah mm-hmm. um, but. To, to me, th- there was was there some struggles after that, or yes, yeah. definitely that that took that took me um, probably a year, you know, of when I actually started feeling resentment towards my adoption, towards my uh, cult- Korean yeah. culture, and that was because I, you know, I really thought about it. I was not the one that was kept. She did keep two two children. And she didn't want to continue a relationship with me because I was still a secret. I was still shame to her. She could not be open about it. She chose a, a better life for herself and got married. You know, that that was my, that's how I saw it when I was a kid. And uh, that resentment was probably one of the the stages of grief that I skipped when I was a child. That's actually something I tend to do in general, even when I found out like I had, uh, I'll talk about this more in depth uh, in a bit, but when I was diagnosed with stage three cancer, when I was um, 36, right after the pandemic hit, I was in shock, of course, but the anger and resentment didn't come until after another adoptee friend asked, did you do 23 and me? What did they say about that? Because they test for that. And I'm like, you know, that's, they, they, it didn't come up as I had it, but I realized talking to the genetics counselor that I worked with after, um, you know, after I was diagnosed, um, and found out I, I am BRCA2 positive. It does run in my genes or my family. Uh, I don't know which side, um, uh, that they test for like a thousand different, there's like a thousand different genes that could be mutated that could cause cancer. And in 23andMe, only, they only test for three strands. So that's what I, I was so angry about that because I'm like, oh, okay, good. I'm not at risk for breast cancer, you know? Um, so that made me mad. I remember writing a scathing email to 23andMe and got a barely any kind of response that was 
meaningful, <laughs> you know? Um, but yeah, so I tend to be very delayed in being, being angry and resentful. Something has to happen where it sort of, uh, sets it off. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, in my twenties, I was going through so much processing the trip from Korea, um, figuring out my identity, uh, realizing how insecure I was and impressionable I was and um, going to college. Uh, my parents had also separated my senior year of high school. Um, so that was that was very hard for me and heartbreaking because I felt like our family was bonded together by love. And if one of one part of that was broken, it just really triggered a lot of like, uh, insecurities about what adoption had done to me. Um, and I realized, you know, in high school, I was such a people pleaser. <laughs> I mean, in my twenties too. And even now it's very much a, a struggle, you know, for me to say no to friends or, you know, at work. Um, but I'm aware of it. I was aware of it, you know, talking to a therapist in my, my twenties. Um, but yeah, I was always trying to, still in my 20s feel like this hole that I was not loved enough and so you know for that little bit of time after meeting her uh that was really nice um but then I think the real work started in my 20s <laughs> yeah. uh because when you're a kid uh it's really it's really great to be aware of you know talking about adoption and things like that but you're still you're still kind of uh, parroting back what you're told growing up by your parents, um, the, the, the small messaging I saw from like the media. Um, so yeah, talking to other adoptees when I started interviewing, hearing their stories, also hearing about reunions other than just their first mothers, but fathers and siblings, that really made me realize how much I would I would like to explore that. And so there was this one Korean adoptee um, who I ended up, my husband, he was my fiance at the time. We went to Korea with her and filmed her search for like her route. She went to a Korea social services uh, in in Seoul. And I remember being so upset for her, filming her. They had this huge stack of paperwork and they only gave her a fraction of it. And they would not release identifying information of her parents. Um, and I did a documentary on this. So I'm okay to, you know, share what's shared in the, the documentary that's open to the public. Um, and she found out that her father had passed. And I just remember seeing like the grief on her face, you know, like the grief that you can feel for not ever really knowing someone your entire life, but still this connection that is, is so deep in, you know, inside of you and to, to learn about that loss uh, from someone you don't know in such a cold manner <laughs> uh, was, was hard for me to, to witness and to see her struggle, you know, with that kind of news. We also went to Busan where she was uh, put in 
she was in an orphanage called like Nam Kwang. And the people there that um, met with us were so much more open. She also had never known what her Korean name meant. Uh, and they told her, they translated it for her, happy girl. <laughs> yeah. And that was that was such an uh meaningful thing to learn um and she got the address of where her parents did live you know when they had put her up for adoption she found out that her mother was very ill and just was not able to take care of uh, the three children she had two older sisters that she found out about um and uh I had asked her do you want to go to that address, you know, or I had gently asked her to, you know, if we, you wanted to find where her father may have been buried, because she had mentioned that maybe she wanted to do that, but she wasn't ready yet. <laughs> so I was, I, what, I, you know, I just put the, the question out there, but I didn't push her because this was such a big journey for her. And she had really barely thought about her adoption growing up. Cause she was adopted. I, I thought it was very interesting. Like her adopted mother was white, but her father was Chinese, uh, you know, American. And uh, so she had, um, you know, someone that, that sort of looked like her in a way. Um, so I don't know, just being a part of that story. I also did a second family search uh, when I was there and it was a uh, very, <laughs> I remember like I couldn't bring anyone with me, not even my fiance or Kathy. And with me, when I talked to people, I was adopted through Eastern Social Child Welfare Society. Um, they said they had sent a letter to the address of where my father supposedly lived. And they think that um, someone who they believe is my sister answered the door. And I remember just thinking, I have a sister, you know, like on my father's side. And uh, when she said that they got no contact from either my my first mother or first father, I just immediately cried. I'm like, here I am in Korea, so close to them in Seoul. And they're not willing to meet with me. It was... But I, I had to set that aside because, you know, I was filming another story, but it was still all like also emotional. We when we were at the at that um, site, we also did a tour and they have a lot of babies still at the facility like NICU babies. And uh, it was it was um, it's uh, so conflicting seeing these kids that, you know, are going to be adopted out. Um. And they're just these innocent babies, their whole life ahead of them. And you don't know if it'll be a really, a really, you know, huge struggle for them. In many ways, it will. It may not be when they're a kid. A lot of adoptees, when they have loving parents, uh, that those sorts of feelings don't necessarily come up. Or they do, they might shove them aside because they, they want to be... Uh, respectful of their their parents that they love and feel grateful towards um, and so sometimes it won't come up until they're much older um, I think with um with these interviews I always I'm always looking for how can we do better I feel like there's always sadly going to be adoptions or families that 
parents may not, they may not be able to take care for them. So temporarily, they may have to be raised by another family member or someone outside of the family. It's been going on since, you know, the the beginning of time of humans. Um, it's so I'm just always looking, I, I feel like talking to, to adoptees that have grown up in partial or open adoptions, is it better for them? And it's, it makes it more complicated in many ways, like how to navigate a relationship with a biological mother that you see once in a while may not be consistent depending on, you know, where she's at in her life or the father. And then when that that mother gets married and has kids of her own that she keeps, like it'll bring up all these other painful feelings of well, why, why couldn't you have made it work with me or, you know, things like that. Yeah. Um, and then, so it's like, I, I still tell everyone's story because I just love connecting with other people uh, that uh, we can connect on this level. Cause it's so unique. We have all these individual experiences and um uh, I, I just don't have an answer still, you know, I, I feel like being open about it and, and also like talking about identity and race that like, that's one thing I didn't have growing up is helpful. Um, but yeah, it's still something I'm searching for. I know for me, like, I feel like my adoption is something I will be processing the rest of my life. I feel like I'm in general a very happy person, even having a horrible cancer diagnosis and treatment, rigorous, very aggressive treatment and surgeries. Um, but I, I still am able to form healthy relationships. But, you know, it's taken a lot of work, <laughs> a lot of therapy. And I journal a lot. I, I love singing. So sometimes I write uh, lyrics. Um, and recently I picked up watercolor painting because nothing I was doing, uh, saying positive affirmations or um, uh, mantras. My therapist gave me mantras, which I thought were so stupid, but I actually started doing them and they were helping me with my anxiety. Um but yeah, the watercolor painting really helps me actually calm all of my like worrying thought, like all of my thoughts that were just uh, all over the place and like the anxiety and the stress and the pain. Uh, um, so I, the thing is, I really like to try and excel at what I do. So now I've kind of taken a, a step back from watercolor painting at times because I'm starting to try and make it too perfect rather than enjoy the process so uh but so I've got to work on that <laughs> I gotta just do stuff that I I enjoy uh, doing um but I think the one thing I really like about it is that it it pushes most of my thoughts out and I just focus on what I'm doing and I'm very calm and relaxed and very content. Um, so one thing I did want to talk about is my cancer journey. Um, 
how it triggered a lot of my adoption trauma. And in many ways, it felt very similar, but so much more uh, physical acute pain. Um, I think finding out that I had that and that it was BRCA2, that I'm BRCA2 positive, it kind of made me really upset that why didn't I, you know, ask more about family health history when I was a kid. So it was an eye opener for me that that is really something the adoption industry fails at. Uh, we they they say this is for the best interest of the child. We'll then have open uh, family health records. Uh, it's so it's so vital. I mean, how many times have adoptees gone to doctor's appointments? And they have to fill out paperwork and they ask all this family history. And you're like, I don't know, I'm adopted. I mean, it's just so frustrating. I had to do that so much. And then and then there's so many things online now. They don't even give that option where you can just write adopted really, you know, obnoxiously big. Um, so, yeah, that was very frustrating. And I decided to do another family birth search to let them know because I knew about I knew I had all these other half siblings. I didn't know which side it came from, you know, maternal, paternal. So I wanted them to know so they could share with their family members, but also to know if they knew of any family members that that had it. Um, and I was lucky, not lucky. I'm sorry. Like, it's more that when you have a health history, you can um, there's like an an act in Korea where they can be more aggressive in their search um, when there's a medical, you know, uh, issue with the adoptee, then they can really, really use all their resources to, to track them down and, and make sure that they'll respond, uh, if they're, you know, still alive. Um, and so I was really upset because my first mother was very angry, apparently that she had been contacted again for the third time. And she's, you know, said, please do not contact me because she still hasn't told her husband. I'm still a secret. Like to this day, I'm still a secret. And um, I try my best to have empathy for her. I don't know the situation, but the only thing I can think of is if she were to tell him and it would be so terrible, he, she would be in physical harm, like, like he would physically hurt her or just leave her. I don't know. That's the only thing like my brain can can think of. Um, but yeah, she said that she didn't know of any cancer in the family. Uh, the only thing I learned was that my grandfather, her father, had died from hypertension. Uh, well, he really would have died probably from a stroke from the hypertension. And um, and when they got in contact with my father, he said he did not know if there is any cancer in the family, but yeah. So this is my first like news about my father, uh, which was um, something new for me, very new. And uh, he, he said, he asked if he, I wanted to do a DNA test. I'm like, Oh, okay. So he doesn't even believe I'm his daughter. Forget this. I'm done. Cause I was in the middle of like chemo. I was about to get surgery after that. I knew how to get radiation therapy. Uh, so I was like, I can't deal with this search anymore. I got no answers. Like, I don't even know if I believe them because there's so much secrecy and lies surrounding adoption. And I know my mother can lie because she's lying to her husband 
this whole time about having a daughter that she gave up for adoption. Um, so that kind of just went out of my my head for a while because I was dealing with so much with my cancer treatments. I had very aggressive, very aggressive chemo. Uh, they call it like for two months, they called it what I was given the red devil. <laughs> it's really adriamycin cyclophosphamide as the technical term for it, but it's like this red uh, color and you get so, so sick from it for the first few days. And then I remember after I had to start on the next chemo regimen, which is like is uh, paclitaxel. It wasn't as bad, but at the end I became so, so ill. They really wanted me to go to the hospital to get like, um, fluids or stuff. And I'm like, no, I can, I can just work on my diet and, and get ready for this surgery. I don't, I really just don't want to go to the hospital for more stuff. Um, and yeah, so time passed. I had these, this major surgery that was horrible. <laughs> it's a bilateral mastectomy with lymph node removal. Then I had to go to occupational therapy. I could not lift my arm past yeah like a few feet, like I was so flexible before. There's all these things that I lost, which made me think of adoption, all these things that I lost um, that I'll have to process. Like I'll have this chronic pain in my my arm for the rest of my life. There's really nothing I can do about it, even with all the stretching and everything. Uh, so I'm at risk for lymphedema in my right arm. Um, yeah, so occupational therapy. I did that. I didn't realize that would be it. I, I didn't even know. I just didn't mentally prepare for the aftermath of this, this first uh, major surgery. Yeah. Everyone said chemo was the worst. I'm like, all right, I got chemo out of the way. I'm, I'm good to go for all these next things. And then I had the second surgery about seven or eight months later. And it was, <laughs> it was terrible. I mean, I was in the hospital, not for four days, but for 10 days, I thought I was going to die. It was, a, um, it was a lot. Um, and I remember not wanting to, to, to do the surgery because I was so scared of like, it, they told me after the first one, that it was hard to wake me up after it. So I, I have a really not great reaction to anesthesia. So I told the, the anesthetist and the doctor, the surgeon, like, please don't give up on me. I was told that it was hard to wake me up at the last surgery. And they're like, okay, Shelby, don't worry, you know. But I had to get a therapist then because I was uh, like a couple months before the surgery because I was so anxious. Um uh, and this, the complications, like I'd lost too much blood. Apparently I had to get my first blood transfusion. Uh, thanks. I'm just so thankful for people who donate blood. Cause it really saves lives. Felt like it saved my life. And then there was, um, when it, it looked, it appeared to be that I, one of the, the reconstructives surgeries didn't work. So they had to take me back in for exploratory surgery to see if there was bleeding and like I was bleeding internally, but it, it wasn't, thank goodness. So I, you know, I had to stay in the hospital to make sure all the swelling went down and then I was okay. But it was like, 
So my my mind trying to process all of this physical trauma from my body, also the fact that I barely could handle any of the pain meds. So I had to get on like the regular ibuprofen, just very high dose as soon as possible because I could not, I could barely hold any food down. Um, and so, you know, I, my, my mom came up with her husband, my stepdad and took care of me for for three weeks because my husband still had to work. Um, so he would visit me in the evenings. And um, so, yeah, it's just like, I, I had all of this crazy physical trauma and uh, which is when I think of it, it's like all of this stuff happens that you don't really remember the trauma, like the physical part, like how much physically you hurt but you still process everything that happened to you afterwards. Like I, I still am, you know? Um, and so I, so everyone, I, I get upset when people say like, like that are, that are watching a loved one go through it, like the cancer, um, like they just want this next chapter re- to be done so they can close that that chapter, you know, and, and move on. And I'm like, you're never going to move on. (laughs) Like I have to, so I had to be on all of this medication afterwards to help prevent the cancer from returning. One of them was called Lymparza and it caused severe headaches, severe fatigue and nausea. (laughs) So it's like, I was almost on this low grade chemo for a year of my life. I lost so much weight. Um, and because of my severe headaches, they ended up doing a brain scan. I needed to just to rule out to make sure the cancer hadn't spread. And so I they found out that I had a brain tumor, which is like a mengenoma. So they believe it to be benign. And I was just like, are you kidding me? So I had to have treatment for that, which is it's called um, gamma knife which is like very targeted radiation. So I reached out again to um, my, you know, my adoption agency in Korea or the contact I had. And I said, please tell my, my parents over there so they can tell their parents about this, this new health issue that I'm dealing with. This is also something that can be genetic. Um, And again, they all said they didn't know. And my birth father asked again, if, we could do a DNA test and, you know, like, and I said, okay, you know, I'm going to do this because if that will make him more open with me, then, okay, I will pay. It was like $75 to send the specific DNA test that they sent me to, um, to do. And I had to pay the $70 to have it shipped to Korea, which made me mad. (laughs) Um, but it was a match and it was like, so quick uh they 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 asked if uh we could exchange informations because my father wanted to contact me and um yeah so I it's been really I haven't actually been super open about about you know after that after being connected with him because it's still something I'm navigating but um I think learning that from you know bits and pieces it's hard with uh this translator app on on the phone it's called like kyo talk um that uh he 
it sounded like he did not want to uh, place me for adoption. Mm. It was really hard. So that's like just another piece of my story that I'm processing. So it's a lot. Um, I'm very happy to re- be reconnected with him and to know that he cares for me. I found out that I have, you know, a brother, a half brother on his side um, that has disabilities, like learning disabilities, and a sister that was very ill when she was a child and they weren't able to like take get her the proper care. And so it's something that she's living with lifelong. So they both live at the home. So I I feel like I get the empathy and compassion, it seems like from my my first father, because he seems like he's very caring. Um, so yeah, my whole cancer journey has brought up a lot of adoption. <laughs> and and that's why. Yes. So what would you, looking back on all this, where where have you found this resilience from? Because it's, it's an incredible story. I, you know, I really think it's from processing adoption from so long, for so long, since I was like five. Uh, and, and, you know, being able to confront my emotions when they come up and not push them aside uh, has really helped me be very resilient. I think it's because I've been always someone who wants to, to survive and always to attach. Um, I think for me, I found out from my birth mom that she did keep me for two, two months and she breastfed me. She, she knew that she wanted to do that. Um, and I, so I bonded, I know I bonded with her and I know that must've made it even harder for her to, to relinquish me. And then I know that I bonded with my foster mom in Korea because I met her when I was 17 and she's so loving and she had a picture of me whereas in a bathtub outside a wooden little bathtub with my hair sticking straight up in a ponytail it was adorable. And she said that her two kids and husband loved me too and they wish they could have kept me. So I had two caregivers that I know loved me and I had, you know, I've really bonded with. Um, I think it's really a struggle for adoptees that don't have that initial bonding in their first year of life. And they really, really struggle with attachment and trusting that because they didn't have that. They weren't wired properly when they were in their formative, you know, those first formative years. And I learned a lot about that from a trauma therapist and, um, takes a lot of work like I think um uh generally I'm a pretty happy person I'm so grateful to be alive and so daily what I work on is I do I do tell myself what I'm grateful for I do feel very blessed Uh, a lot of terrible things have happened in my life that was out of my control adoption was out of my control getting cancer was out of my control um and it's just how, you know, how you, um, uh, work with what you're given, even if it's really hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, wow. but yeah, so I don't want people to ever tell me how I shouldn't feel a certain way or what I should be grateful for. That's, that's my, my choice. And I actively do that each day. Um, I think in my 20s was when I found out 
through therapy that I was very codependent uh, growing up. And so, and it's funny because my mom would tell me that all the time when I was like in my late teens. And I thought, you know, I didn't, I didn't believe a word she said or like <laughs> listen to her. And I'm like, oh yeah, she was totally right. But that's because she's codependent, yeah. um, which is very unhealthy. And so it took a really long time with a workbook, which is very unnatural to retrain how I thought. And that's something I still actively have to do. Um, it became more easy like in my early thirties, you know? Um, but I think after cancer, uh, it started start coming back, but that's, I think because of being so isolated, uh, um, I feel like I mourn the ability that all these other people had that have gone through cancer pre-pandemic or now even because uh, people could be there when they were getting chemo like I was in the facility for like four to six hours <laughs> I mean it's not yeah. it's not something quick that takes like an hour when you get chemo it's like four to six hours um and I had to be alone um and so I feel like you know a lot of adoptees that don't have open communication growing up or even as adults, you know, that maybe it's a subject they can't talk with their adoptive parents because it's too upsetting to them. They have to go on this alone. Yeah. It's so isolating. And it's something you have to process later on when you finally are able to open up about it. Yeah. So I don't know. <laughs> wow. There's I so think, much there. There's so much there. Um, I know there's just so much, but I'm still like, so much light I have so much light if that you know is the right word to use um so grateful to be alive still and uh, it just uh makes me even more passionate when I have the energy to to film other people's stories um so if you're interested listeners you've got to check out um in the show notes as always um so I'm cutting you off a little bit there but we're, I'm conscious of time's moving on um uh so in the show notes listeners there's, there's a link to shelby's website and you can find out about more about her work um supporting other adoptees um yeah uh, but what a survival what a what a story yeah thank you Shelby. thank you so much yeah thanks listeners we'll speak to you again very soon cheers bye-bye